That's a pretty fun way to start a day, amen? amen. It's great in this, uh, this series that we're in right now called Follow Me. What we're doing is, is kind of re-engaging the call of Jesus to be disciples. It's one of those things that get lost over time that when we begin to follow Jesus, we can forget what those first days were like. We can even forget what that first call was to. And so the picture that we have up here is kind of the perfect picture as we go through this series. We started by saying discipleship is essential, that you can't be a Christian and not be a disciple, that they're one and the same. And then last week we said discipleship was responsive, that when Jesus says, follow me, that there was a a response expected and, and we can't stall and hold out and say, but maybe if only that Jesus says there's a response required. And so what we've kind of seen this morning is, is a bunch of brave little souls decide that they're willing to make that step, to have that response, and to show the world that they are intending to live their lives as disciples of Jesus. And so today, we continue on in that series, and we move from essential to responsive uh, to costly. And so what we're going to see in the scripture is not only is grace free and wonderful, it is the gift of God that we might be saved, but there's also a cost down the road. There's something that we give up in order to gain. And so we're going to read and see what that is about. Uh, It will be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. The Bible says this. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So last week we dealt with those latter two ideas, the but first, if only ideas. Let me go do this, but first let me do that. And we dealt with that and said that there's a response required and that we're not really allowed to tell Jesus what the qualifications of following him are. What we see this week, as we look at the first gentleman that walks up, we see him give an unqualified offer of support to Jesus. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. And so when we look at that, we go, well, the, first, the second two, Jesus got onto them because when he said, will you follow me wherever I go? They said, well, maybe if. And, and they got scolded a little bit. And the first one said what we think is the right answer. He said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And yet Jesus gave him this strange answer as well. What he does is Jesus points to the cost of discipleship. And so while the men from last week, these men who need to go bury their, their father, the men that need to go say goodbye to their family, those men didn't understand the greatness or the immediacy of the kingdom. This week, as we look at this, this man who says, I'll follow you wherever you go, it's possible he doesn't understand the hardness of the kingdom. This man doesn't get the hardness of the kingdom. He, he seems to come with youthful enthusiasm, with a bit of an idealistic bent. And what I think we'll see today is, is Jesus actually invites us into the death of idealism, which is a strange thing to say, but I think we'll get there together. You see, the doctrine of the kingdom of God is wildly attractive to idealists. It's like a fairy tale becoming real. It's wrong set right. It's justice being done. It's power being put in its place. It's radical change. It's new order, heroic tales, light over darkness. Idealists, I I think, are kind of, I call them closing credits people. So no matter how dark the movie gets, they know what's going to come because at the closing credits, everything works out. There's always a happily ever after on the way. And like movies, that's, that's sort of true. 
And Jesus is saying to the idealists in the room, Jesus says, your understanding of the gospel is partial. It's not that there isn't a happily ever after coming. It isn't that heaven isn't uh, the place where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more shame. It isn't that that isn't true. That's true. But Jesus is saying your understanding of the totality of the kingdom is only partial. Because those good things are going to happen. But Jesus says, I am the coming of the kingdom of God and look at me. I am the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven on earth and look at me. Jesus says, I am homeless. I am poor. I don't have status or credentials or influence or power. Jesus looks at this young idealist and says, you see climax and ending credits. But what you've missed is the conflict. I don't have a political party to back me. I don't have a media outlet in my back pocket. I don't have wealth or standing or pedigree or degree. Why does Jesus say these things? Why does Jesus go to these places? Why does Jesus refute the man who says, I'll follow you wherever you go? Because the kingdom of God is not found in the things that the average person think it is. The kingdom of God is not found in wealth. The kingdom is not, it's not found in status. It's not found in, in climbing up the corporate ladder. It's not found in worldly success of any way, shape, or form. And so when an idealist says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus has to make sure they understand that none of the things that would check the box in society, none of those things are where the, the treasure of the kingdom of God is found. It's not found in any of that stuff. It's found only in the person of Jesus. And so I wonder if this young man must be thinking, don't you want me to follow you? I just came and invited myself to follow. You didn't have to twist my arm. I'm just here. What about this victory and the redemption? I've been following you for a while. What about all that, Messiah? To which Jesus, if you read through his words, if you see the way he addressed the people as you go through your New Testament, you recognize that Jesus says, I'm absolutely bringing victory, but I'm bringing victory through defeat. I'm bringing victory by being beaten up and chased around and hustled down. Think about it. Judas was hired by the government to lead them to Jesus. Jesus is a wanderer. Jesus is homeless. Jesus is going from spot to spot, from group to group. He's doing miracles and saying, don't tell anybody. Don't say anything. I got more to do before my time has come. And eventually, they have to hire Judas to lead them to Jesus and make sure they find him at a spot because he keeps slipping out of their grasp. The kingdom of God, Tim Keller says, advances through self-denial and suffering, which is not like a really rosy, exciting message for people. The kingdom of God advances through self-denial and suffering. What he's saying is it will cost you. Think of it this way. We're in a campaign season locally, and frankly, every four years in the presidential world, as soon as the last campaign is over, it's the first day of the next campaign. You're always campaigning. And when people are campaigning for a political office, they make something called a campaign promise. We're all familiar with that. We know what that is. We know one when we hear one. And what happens in campaigning is ideals are held out. People hold out the ideal. Some will say no more taxes. Some will say no more college debt. People have these ideals, these kind of wild, broad, brushstroke ideals that they hold out for others. It's an, it's an appeal to get votes. If I can appeal to your idealism, I will get your vote, even if we're all aware that no matter who wins what, it's never going to quite be what they said at that speech. And this has not been a new phenomenon. People have long promised things in campaign speeches that didn't come to pass. And sometimes they did it with uh, creative rebellion. Like Abraham Lincoln promised in campaign speeches that he would never abolish slavery. Gotcha. FDR said he would balance the budget. Not exactly. 
LBJ said, I'll never send troops to Vietnam. Look where that got us. And famously, George H.W. Bush, I remember seeing it live. He said, read my lips. No new taxes. And these were ideals that people put forward in order to get into office. And then the reality of the world crashes in and circumstances happen and situations come forth or real agendas are shown. So Abraham Lincoln's real agenda was to abolish slavery. And so when he gets into office, then he takes his campaign promise that he gave to some people to get him elected. And he said, that's not really real. I got to do what I'm here to do. Or Bush gets into office and I guarantee you his ideology said no new taxes, but the reality of the situation in the world he inherited says, I guess we're going to have to have a few. And so he gets to do what he has to do. But when we have a campaign promise, people give you the best and the highest ideal to appeal to you, to try to get your vote. Join my movement and everything will be better. Vote for me and everything will work out just fine. Jesus says, join me and you can be homeless too. He's not getting many votes. He's not getting any votes. Join me and you can be chased around too. Join me and you can be homeless. Join me and you can be poor. People are going, that's, that's not what I'm signing up for, Jesus. And, and sometimes we, we read something like that and we go, maybe we're just misreading it. Maybe this is out of context. Maybe if I, I looked at the whole of, of what Jesus said, this is just sort of an outlier. We go to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. The Bible says that calling the crowd to him, to Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Notice a couple things. First, he's not speaking to believers already. It says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So he has those who are already voting for him. And then he calls the others around. He calls the other crowd and he goes, hey, I got a speech for you guys. I need your votes. I need your votes. And they all come around. He's back on the campaign, campaign trail. And he basically says, the kingdom of God advances through self-denial and suffering. Who's in? It's not easy in that culture. It's, it's, I would argue, even less easy in our culture to follow that sort of message. That self-denial and suffering are the way to the kingdom. Because we live in the culture that is, uh, highest priority is comfort. And secondarily, is self-identification. And so self-denial and suffering runs counter to everything in our culture that says we are made through comfort and self-identification. Denial of self is our culture's greatest fear. It's secularism's greatest sin. Speak your mind, you're told. You do you. We live in a world of fluid gender where you are what you feel today. And if you want to change your mind for tomorrow, you can. Be true to yourself. Own your truth. The point of life, as the postmoderns would define it in 2019, is to discover your true self and then live it. Express yourself. So the most offensive thing in our culture is to be seen constraining anyone from being who they claim to be. Jesus doesn't say express yourself. He says deny yourself. And this runs so counter to the message of our culture. He doesn't say express yourself. He doesn't say find the inner you. He doesn't say you do you. He doesn't say be who you feel like being or or dream what you want to dream or make up your own truth. Jesus says deny yourself and take up your cross. The reality is that following Jesus requires that we deny some of our deepest longings, feelings, ambitions, and intuitions. 
Following Jesus requires that we deny some of our deepest longings, feelings, ambitions, and intuitions. The things that we feel hardwired to chase. Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Take up your cross in our culture is this sweet metaphor for doing hard things. Man, everybody's got a cross to bear. This one's just mine. But we don't say it in the way that Jesus would have said it. We say it with a little cultural uh, distance, I would say. So in about a month, when Aunt uh, Gladys and Uncle Cletus show up at your Thanksgiving with their awkward political conversation and their bad jello salad, somebody will go, well, it's just our cross to bear. We had to host them this year. And you'll go, I don't know if that's, the, I don't know if that's it. You're stuck in traffic and it's just your cross to bear. You have a tough bedtime routine with your kids and that's just your cross to bear. And that's, that's kind of how we use that term, carry your cross. I just got to carry my cross through this season. And while that's a, a sweet metaphor, it doesn't get into a sliver of what Jesus is inviting people to do. When a criminal was sentenced to crucifixion in uh, the time of Christ, not only one was he sentenced to uh, death in a torturous and horrendous way, so life is lost, but secondarily, until he gets to that crucifixion, he has been stripped of all rights. He has no human rights. And so when the prisoner would take his crossbeam and they would load him up with a, like it's a capital T when you're crucified in Roman culture. They'd load him up with the crossbeam, and then you'd have to walk the way up to the space of crucifixion. And along the way, the crowds would gather, and this was widely known. It's been widely written about, historically accurate. People were allowed to do whatever they wanted because this condemned man had no rights, and so people would spit, and they would jeer, and they'd jump out of the line, and they'd punch him as he goes by. Some historians even say that those crucified would get to the place of their crucifixion and feel relieved because they were treated so badly by the crowd. That's the invitation Jesus gives those who he calls to be his followers. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but losing it for my sake and the gospel, you'll find it. This is not a vague invitation to follow Jesus in some undefined postmodern way. This is not an invitation to give a nod to Jesus of your imagination on occasion. This is not a, a, an idea that maybe if we post a couple more social media things here and there, then, then that's our witness and that's what we've been called to do. To follow the Jesus of the gospel means to follow into the costly footsteps of the rabbi Jesus who took the cross, walked the way, was crucified. That's what he's inviting others into. Sam Alberry says it this way. He says, there will be times in your discipleship where it feels like Jesus is killing you. Some of you have been through some trials. Hard things with adult kids, hard things losing people that you love. There are times in your discipleship where it feels like Jesus is killing you by shaping you into the person he's designed you to be. Losing your life is what it feels like. Because it's exactly what's happening. When we've been invited to follow Jesus, we've been invited to drop our nets to let the rest go. And so we follow him and we lose the old self and take on the new. He's stripping away the old. Pruning is painful. So you get the punch from the crowd and you go, this is what I signed up for? And Jesus goes, yeah, follow me. So the question becomes, what do we do? This sounds neither inspiring nor hopeful. This is actually kind of depressing. And so why would anyone follow Jesus? Psalm 141.8 says, But my eyes are fixed on you, O God, the Lord. In you I seek refuge. Do not leave my soul defenseless. That the faithful know that where they find hope and where they find joy and where they find the optimism to take on the next day, 
is by fixing eyes on God, by losing ourselves, by losing my sight, by losing my hope, by losing my dreams, and finding all of that in the newness of Jesus. Hebrews 12, the writer says it this way, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you feel like life is punching you, when you feel like life is mocking you, when you feel like your faith is a hindrance to what you hoped for in this life, it says, remember that Jesus has been there first. Keep your eyes on him because he kept his eyes on the joy set before him. And we've talked about this in here before. The joy set before him was relationship with you. That's why he did it. His only agenda was to redeem you. And you were the singular joy set before him. And then he invites us into life with him. And he says, guess what your joy will be to fix your eyes on me. And that reunification of purpose and that reunification of design is what you were created for. And in that we find joy. In that the kingdom comes together. In that we find out why we were created in the first place. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We walk like he walked. And what happens is we start to love the unlovable. We start to find radical generosity in places we didn't know it existed. We start to fight for the weak ones in our culture. We start to speak out for the voiceless. And the joy that comes with Jesus outweighs all of the costs along the way. And so we swallow. We follow for the joy set before us. And yet there will be people in the room who go, listen, that's passionate, but I still don't see the joy. Where is all the joy you promised? You've said that we're going to be mocked and we're going to be punched and we're going to have to follow and lose ourselves. You killed my idealism and you replaced it with suffering and self-denial. Where's the joy? The reality is that we've been promised a new life, that Scripture lays out that when we choose to follow Christ, we are new creations, that the new has come, the old is gone. It's the picture in the water. The old goes away, and we rise up as new creations. It's like crossing a border. This summer, my family took a day. We spent a day at Belle Isle, which is uh, this little 800-acre little island in the Detroit River between Detroit and Canada. So we made the ride up, and we got our fried chicken, and we kind of had our day plan, and we went and sat and had a picnic at the park. And there's people everywhere, and there's family reunions, and there's kids playing. And if you look this way, you throw a rock far enough, you can hit downtown Detroit, and you look this way and throw a rock far enough, and people say nice things to you and eat poutine. It's a whole thing. We were there. We were basically in Canada. We were so close. I can see it. I could swim it. I wasn't in it. We were still in Detroit. We got as close as we could get. We kind of worked our way there. We got the right directions. We took the right way. We got as close as we could get to Canada, but we never crossed the border. The law never changed. Our money never changed. Never got our passports named. Nothing, nothing actually was exchanged. We just got as close as we could on our own effort. Following Jesus is crossing a border. It's a commitment to a status change. Not a series of life improvements and right directions that get you as close as possible to the border of salvation. That's not how Jesus works. There's no system where you do, you do enough right things, you make enough right decisions, you earn your way in. No, that gets you to the border, but it doesn't get you across. You can get as close as you want, but short of Jesus, there is no new creation. This is why we do baptism by immersion and not wading into the water. Because that top is warm, but the bottom's cold. 
So when you hop in, you're like, well, I guess I'm in. But if you put a toe in, you would take that toe right back and go, man, that costs a lot. That's cold. And the picture is we go all in for Jesus because he first went all in for us. Following Jesus creates a redefinition of everything you know and love. Redefines independence and wealth. It redefines comfort and control. You cross a border, the law is different, isn't it? What was true on one side, you take a step and it's not true anymore. The same is true with your faith. What's true on this side of life and that side is radically different. The law is different. Richness is defined in a new way. Comfort is not what we thought it was. Hope and grace are found in mercy and the mercy and kindness of Jesus, not in control and power that we look for in the world. When we lack joy in the Christian life, People go, where's my joy? Here's the answer. When we lack joy in our Christian life, it's because we're longingly looking back over the border from which we came. When we lack joy in our Christian life, it's because we still have eyes fixed on where we came from. If it's wealth or it's status or it's sex or it's status or it's whatever, you go through anything that you used to be about and you cross the border into a new creation and if you're still looking back at the old thing, guess where your joy is? Not where it's supposed to be. That's what Jesus meant when he said, no one after following me and then, and then looking back, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. What he's saying is you can't be in the kingdom and still want to be in the other. You can't have the joy I'm offering you and still be longing for the past. If you agree to cross the border, you got to do it. Of course you're dissatisfied. You're walking this way and looking that way. You're bumping into stuff all over the place. That's no shortage of pathologies that you're going to run into along the way when you're living the split personality of I say I'm one thing, but I really want the other. It's like getting married and thinking about your high school sweetheart. And you didn't marry your high school sweetheart. What's the joy in that? What's the point of that? Who wins in that? Yeah, but she sure was nice. Yeah, he sure was sweet to me. And you crossed a border. And that's not helping anybody. And guess what? All it's going to do is steal the joy of where you are because all you're doing is looking back. We end up becoming Frankenstein Christians. Trying to bolt dead stuff onto new stuff and see if it all comes to life. I'm going to bring all the dead stuff from my past into the future and see if it works. Bolting dead parts together is no path to new life. But you and I, when we call ourselves Christians and we're still living the old way, that's what we're doing. We're trying to bring old dead stuff across the border and we're wondering why it doesn't bring us new life. Slap all your old idols on your new life in Jesus. God, why won't you jumpstart my career? God, I want to really find love. God, why won't you give me more money? God, why won't you fix my family? You sow old idols onto new life and wonder why it looks like a monster. Because you never denied self, you just added old to new. Jesus offers us a new life, but he's pretty clear that it doesn't coexist with our old life. This is not an update of an app, it's a whole new operating system. We cross the border, we have to stop looking back. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. To look back is to invite the deadness of the old life. And when you invite the deadness of old life, you don't get to see the newness and the joy of your new life. When you're focused on death, life is not in your purview. To follow Jesus is to cross a border 
and then spend the rest of our lives acclimating to a new culture, to spend the rest of our lives learning new laws and languages, to spend the rest of our life getting immersed in a new thing. Just like an election, it doesn't happen overnight. You elect a new person in uh, school board or the president. They don't have all their policies in place on day one. It takes years to get all that stuff put in place. And so on day one, they may be the president, they may be the school board leader, they may be whoever, but we still operate under the old administration. And so a lot of people say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And on day one, it's just as hard as it was the day before. And they go, well, it didn't work for me. And the reality is, your status has changed, but now you've got you to work at it to get the administration on board with you. Because you've got a lot of old habits and old hang-ups and old hurts you've got to work through. And as you work through those, what you see, like immersion in a new language, you begin to learn the new way. You begin to experience the new way. And pretty soon you look around and you can't even understand the old way anymore. And it's, it never, it's never quick. People go, I, I used to like this and now I can't stand it. I used to want to do that and now I don't want that at all. What was my joy is not my joy anymore. I've learned a new language of joy. What I dreamed about has changed. I've learned a new language of hopes and dreams. I would tell you when I was in college, the thing I wanted to do was be a basketball coach and a history professor. Preferably not at the same time. That's hard. I wanted season tickets to the San Antonio Spurs. I wanted to be a basketball coach and a history professor. Hopes and dreams, high as I could think. Today, blows that out of the water. Across the border. If you think about what happened in this water practically, my child put on a t-shirt that was too big for her, so we kind of knotted it up so it wouldn't look quite so big, and then she got into some lukewarm water, we said some words, we splashed her, and she got out of some lukewarm water and left. In a worldly sense, that makes no sense at all. There's nothing magical about it, there's nothing impressive and important about it. No one would dream about that you cross a border and you recognize that this is my new hope and dream that my child might learn great faith that in her faith she might find security beyond me that in her security she might find resilience that in her resilience she may take on injustice and this becomes the beginning point a monumental movement that isn't just water it's more but it's a new hope and dream of a new creation It wasn't my dream. It was a dream that I was given. When Michael gets in the water and says, man, I used to be afraid of being alone. I never have to worry about that again. I lost it. When I first heard that's what he was going to say, I lost it. I said, that is every single testimony in the room, whether we want to admit it or not. That is the father's dream. That's a mother's dream. That's a grandmother's dream. No amount of money, or fame, or success, or status could replace it. We learn a new language when we cross the border of faith if we keep our eyes fixed on the one who gives us this joy. So the question becomes, how do we each apply this? There's two types of people in the room. There's one simple question for each. If you don't yet follow Jesus, if you go, hey, I'm not sure if this is for me, I've never made that decision. I've never crossed that border. Not even sure if any of it's real. My question for you is, where are you trying to improve your life and how's it going for you? Where are you trying to improve and get closer and closer to whatever perfect looks like for you and how's it going? How's it satisfy? 
Your invitation is to cross the border. If you're a follower of Jesus, whether it's been for 15 minutes or 50 years, man, sometimes we miss the signals of joy that God has sent to us in our life because we have our sights set way too low. We miss it on beauty because we're stuck in the mud. We have our eyes fixed on the past and we can't see the beautiful future he's created for us. So your question is, where are your eyes fixed? In your hopes, in your dreams, in your downtime, in the quiet when you are alone and it is just you and your thoughts, what is it you dream of? Where are your eyes fixed? Two opportunities this morning. One is to cross the border. Another is to refix our eyes on the person of Jesus. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a great life as we take the journey of discipleship together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and generous God. Lord, it is uh, sort of overwhelming to imagine uh, approaching Jesus and having him tell us hard things. It's overwhelming in our culture to think of denying ourselves. It's overwhelming in our culture to think that uh, comfort may not be your design for us all the time, that suffering is part of the deal. Lord, that leaves us feeling uh, despondent, if we're honest. It leaves us in despair. Father, I pray that you would impress upon us the second piece of what you lay out for us, which is not just the death of the old and the stripping of the old, but God, that you would impress on every heart that there is an offer for new. Lord, that you would, uh, that you would encourage each and every heart in this place. Lord, if you need to use dissatisfaction and despair to do it, then Father, do that. Lord, if you just simply need to entice us to a joy that we can't find any other place, Lord, I pray that you would draw us closer to you. Lord, find our eyes fixed on Jesus and nothing less. Find our dreams, your dreams, our joys, your joys. And then as a result of that, God, my prayer for us as a community is that these walls would fall and we would stream out into a world that is desperate for more. And we wouldn't offer more, we would offer everything in the person of Jesus. So Lord, light a fire under us. Give us your passion. Give us your sense of justice and mercy. Lord, invite us to participate in your world-changing work. We love you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.